This is The Sean Prue Show on Canada Talks, Sirius XM 167. Glad you're here. You picked a good one. Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor is here second half of the show with over 27 million views of her viral TED Talk, a stroke of insight from 13 years ago. She may have had arguably the world's most famous stroke. Her book, also called A Stroke of Insight, spent 63 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list in 2008. And she's here today to talk to us about PTSD and understanding it. The more we learn about this affliction, the more we realize how many people are battling this condition. 70% of adults at least one, have at least one traumatic event in their lifetime. 20% of those will develop PTSD. So we have that for you. And now I want to ask you a personal question. Have you ever been tested for HIV? This Sunday is National HIV Testing Day, and estimates suggest that here in Canada, there are over 9,000 people who aren't aware of their status, which is 14% of those living with HIV. And if you don't know you need treatment, you don't access it. And if you don't know you're HIV positive, you risk putting others at risk. We're going to talk about what's being done about this in just a few minutes. But first, I call BS. What do you think of people who BS you all the time? You might find them annoying, you might find them hard to trust, you might get tired of constant BS, but do you find them to be smarter than you? Turns out they are, and our friend of the show, Dr. Carol Lieberman, is here to share WTF about BS. Hi, Carol. I like that. <laughs> Hi there, Sean. <laughs> nice to see you. Now, are we allowed to say the words? Um, if, we say, if we say the S word, my yeah. um, producer will murder me because he's got okay. to go over and, and beep it all out. So we can okay. say BS, I think. Okay. Um, let me ask you this. What, how do you define BS? We know it when we hear it most of the time. It is making up something uh, to try to convince others that you know what you're talking about. And um, to try to impress others or to try to uh, get others to believe a certain thing that you want them to believe. Um, and there was recently this interesting study of uh, over a thousand undergrads mm. and they tested uh, this, this is an interesting um, uh, outline for the, for a study. They First, they wanted to test people on their ability to BS and then on their willingness to BS. And it turns out the people who um, are best at BSing um, are, are, don't necessarily use it the most. In other words, oftentimes they use it the least because they are more intelligent. The study has shown that they are more intelligent. And, um, and so the idea is that these people who are more intelligent are able to understand their audience better, understand, figure out whether the person they're talking to will be able to realize that they're BSing them. Did this surprise you, this, this um, finding? Have you found in your years of research that people who are good at BS are more intelligent in your own work? Well, you know, um, I haven't really thought about it in terms of intelligence, um, but more in terms of sociopathy, <laughs> which they didn't measure. At well, least, tell us what uh, that is. You know, lying, um, uh, you know, um, taking being like a criminal, taking advantage of others, uh, being a manipulator. I mean, you know, so it, now they didn't rule out that or didn't test for that, but um, that is how I thought of it. But it does make sense. You know, this the results of the study uh, do sense. make sense. 
And especially the idea that, you know, the people who are best at it are more intelligent and don't necessarily use it because they're they're, you know, scanning the room or people are going to believe this BS. Did they not say too that people who are good at BS didn't always BS people? It was it was more on occasion. Yes, that's what yeah. I was they they selectively decide when to BS. When to now, do the, it. The one thing though that kind of worries me about this, and I, I looked at some other studies too. Um, there's one you can't BS a BSer, <laughs> or can you? Um, the, the, in this original study, they found that. Um, the people who were better at BSing, the, therefore the more intelligent people, yes. were also more likely to believe BS. Now, there are other studies that sort of, you know, are, are contradictory to that. But but the idea that it could be true is worrisome because that would mean that the more intelligent people um, are more susceptible to fake news, for example, which right. could explain right. why right. our right. society is going down the <laughs> Now we understand everything. Um, do do BSers have to be really good at it, or um, do we always know when someone's being BSing us? Well, no, not everybody knows. But um, I was I wanted to tell you the the way that they measured this. Uh, they they gave people ten concepts, these undergrads, and they asked them. Um, to use a five point scale ranging from I never heard of the concept or I know it well, I understand it. And they gave six concepts that were actual concepts, real. And then they gave four concepts that were made up but sound like something. <laughs> There's subjunctive scaling, declarative fraction, <laughs> genetic autonomy, and neural acceptance. And so the people who um, denied that they, you know, who said that they have an understanding of these concepts were obviously BSing. You have to be bright to even try and 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 fake your way through those concepts because the the titles of them I don't even understand. Yes, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> then they had people rating these people to see on on scales to see how accurate they thought they were or how satisfying their explanations were, and um, you know they and and this also correlated with intelligence. The better BSers were more intelligent. What's the psychology behind a BSer who perpetually BSes us? Well, you know, it's interesting because, I mean, there's on the um, for the sociopathic ones, um, they are manipulating. They are trying to get something. Um, but that isn't the only reason why people BS. I mean, a lot of times people BS um, because they don't really understand something. They don't want people to know that they're not intelligent. Yes. So, so they dance and fake it till they make it. Exactly. Exactly. Now we have a wonderful um, example of this, of a BS, of a <laughs> perfect example of a BSer, and that is Dr. Fauci. Oh, tell me why you say that. He is very intelligent. We will give yes. him that, right? Um, but um, you know what he has been telling us about COVID over these months, um, at, compared to his. I, I trust you know about his emails, right? Yes. <laughs> he has been, uh, you know, he has been BSing us um, and and with his contradictory, you know, everything is contradictory and all that and uh, getting us to wear masks, not wear masks, getting the governors, for example, um, and other people who have have power to mandate us to be in lockdowns when we didn't necessarily have to be in, in lockdowns, just going back and forth and and. uh 
And the reason why I bring up Dr. Fauci, you may, you may ask, is because I have started a petition. Please fire Fauci. Oh, my. That's, that's no web, BS. That's no BS. <laughs> that's the website, www.pleasefirefauci.com. I and, wonder, can, can someone be a BSer and be well-intended? Like there, there's, I don't think he's going around doing this to screw people over. Do you know what I mean? Like he's not, he's not doing it to, well, to, to F everything up. Um, is there BS that's well-intended? There can be BS that's well-intended, you know, if it's just to protect yourself from people thinking that you're stupid or, you know, you, you're supposed to know something and you don't. But um, I don't think that all of his BS was well intended um, because I think and it's going to be coming out more and more that it's already come out some um, that he has financial um, a, a fine. There's a financial benefit to some of his BS, like his connection with the vaccines and so on. Um, and and also, you know, he's uh, I mean, you know, his. The idea that he wants to is saying all of this just to benefit us Americans or the world, um, you know, when he is making more money than the president, he he makes more from just from the federal government than the president. Mm. And um, and he you know, and then he's getting all this celebrity. He's really into it, you know, changing his stories and all that to have a new um, a new uh, soundbite each day. Of course, now you've noticed that he's gone quiet for a while since the emails came out he's not in the media as much you know who's but, not being quiet right now my producer who wants us to wrap this up <laughs> my last question for you has this segment been real or was it all bs <laughs> <laughs> with you it's always real <laughs> thank you nice to see you carol thank thanks you, for coming carol. on the show today have a good day thank you you too on the way, Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor is our special guest in just a short while. But when we come back, about 9,000 people are living with HIV in Canada. This Sunday is National HIV Testing Day. Find out what's being done to get more people to find out if they're HIV or not. You've got the Sean Prue Show here on SiriusXM Canada Talks, Channel 167. The Sean Pru Show on Canada Talks, Sirius XM 167. Glad you're with us. Uh, here's a job title you don't see every day. National STBBI Testing and Linkage Implementation Manager. That is one of those titles that tells us nothing. But I will find out what he's up to. Chris Dranos holds the title, and he's here to talk to us about the over 9,000 people living with HIV in Canada. He's with the Community-Based Research Centre, what is a national STBBI testing and linkage implementation manager, Chris? Uh, thanks for asking. It is a very <laughs> long title. Um, so really, uh, my organization, the Community-Based Research Center, we're involved in a variety of testing initiatives related to HIV and other sexually transmitted and blood-borne infections. And there's a lot of really new and exciting things that are coming um, down the pipes in terms of testing technology. And we're really, um, my job is really to look at how we can implement this nationally uh, as Canada is really lagging behind a lot of other countries when it comes. To we are, we're lagging behind. 
Yeah, like, um, yeah, I think we're going to talk a little bit about this uh, later, but there's uh, the HIV self-test. Uh, was only yes. approved here in Canada in November of 2020. Yet it's been available across the world for almost a decade now and in the United States since 2013. So that's a pretty long time, I would think. It's a really long time, and it's important to get this um, testing kit into people's hands because, as I was saying earlier in the show, 9,000 people or more are living with HIV in Canada, and they don't know what their status is. That's 14% of people living with HIV, so that means they don't have access to treatment, um, and they are at risk of putting others at risk. Yeah, and you know, this is also the 40th anniversary of the first reported cases of HIV. So we're in the fourth decade of the global HIV pandemic. And despite all these technological advances in testing, prevention, and treatment, there are still people living with HIV who don't know their status. And, and it's really just barriers to access testing, fear, shame, judgment. And we really need to do better as a society to, to, to change the way that we talk about HIV and to uh, provide access to HIV testing. Uh, am I right in assuming that it's, it is the fear, the, the judgment, the stigma that keeps people from doing this more so than access to testing? I, I really think it's a combination of all of, of, of both of it. I, I think that there are, I mean, people do get tested. However, um, we have noticed during the pandemic that people have been delaying going to testing due to access issues. Um, hmm. Specifically, clinics are being closed or they just had safety concerns. And the number of um, people have delayed testing uh, nearly doubled before, during the pandemic. Uh, but the access was not great beforehand. No, it wouldn't have been. Um, do we have any idea of the 9,000 people living with HIV in Canada who don't know their status? How many of those uh, identify as um, men who have sex with men? Uh, versus identifying as straight, um, whether they're they're female, male, trans. So it's where's where's the problem um, the most? So really, uh, that's a great question. I think that the problem is that people who haven't been tested and haven't been reached by our collective testing efforts, we don't actually know truly who they are, and so. The things we do know are that more than 50% of new infections are amongst gay, bi, queer, trans, and two-spirit men, uh, and that uh, people who are, and that our communities uh, do test more than others. So we, I think our, our research is quite important for us to find uh, what we are, uh, who those people are that aren't uh, accessing testing on a regular basis. And so that's one of the reasons why we're running our Sex Now survey at the moment. So you're you're doing the Sex Now survey, and that's for GBT2Q people in Canada. Um, how do you get it out to the rest of the population? Yeah. So our uh, the focus of the community based research center is on the queer male community. Uh, our research partner, Reach Nexus, out of St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, uh, is running their own study called I'm Ready. And this is available to anyone in Canada over the age of 18. And uh, CBRC uh, is a partner on the peer navigation support part of this project. And so people would download an app. 
uh, and you can go to readytoknow.ca to find out more about that uh, specific project. Um, governmental leadership. Tell us a bit more about uh, what you say and, and mentioned earlier about the complete lack of leadership when it comes to ensuring that this kit that we've had for a long time can get it into the hands of anyone who wants a test. So, What's, What was the problem there? So the HIV self-test has recently, only recently been approved and we are unaware of any provincial or federal or territorial government that is offering any program uh, that to access HIV self-tests. And other jurisdictions have found that HIV self-testing does reach people who have not accessed testing in other ways. And so we're hopeful that out of the research that we're doing, that uh, governments will step up and fund these programs adequately. We work with dozens of community organizations across the country who would be very happy to get their hands on these HIV self-tests and work with people who can't see a physician or nurse uh, practitioner or registered nurse, especially for those in remote communities, and could get HIV self-test kits into the hands of those folks. And so we really want to encourage our uh, funders to actually fund programs uh, related to this. Fund the programs. What do you do when someone's, I, I mean, I love the idea of a self-test uh, self test kit. Um, I can see why that would work and help the cause. But what happens when someone finds out that they are HIV positive in terms of their immediate psychological needs, if, if there are any? I don't know. I mean, still today, I've, I've known guys who have um, converted and, and they, were, they were devastated by the news as though it were the 80s. Um, what happens when someone's sitting alone in their home and realizes that they're HIV positive? Where do they go? So we have a variety of supports that are available to people. And so through our research study, we have trained a number of peers who are calling the Test Now Buddies. And so they are 2SLGBTQ uh, people uh, or allies who are available by phone, by text, by email, and can provide some of that emotional support. I think that it really does, you know, your, your question really brings us back to the, the fear and the stigma around mm -hmm. HIV testing as some, many people aren't aware that there are effective treatments for HIV. You can lead a long and healthy life living with HIV. And if you are able to take medication on a daily basis, you are able to pass HIV on to your partners. And I think that as it's, it's hard to know how, how any one person may feel, uh, but really I think the message is that there are people out there who are here to support you and we're available. And some of us uh, on the team are living with HIV, some of us aren't, but we all um, have had experience with HIV testing. So we do know what it's like to some degree, uh, what that feels like. Canada is committed to ending the AIDS epidemic by 2030. What's the role that these self-kits, test kits um, play in that? That's, that question is really still for us to find out, and that's why we're doing this research work. And we need to understand who is going to benefit the most from the HIV self-test, what their experience using the test kit is, and where it can have the most impact. So for us to be able to 
really, uh, and the HIV epidemic. I mean, the HIV self-test is one tool. However, it's, it's only if people access it, only if it gets into the hands of the right folks, are we going to be able to, to end the epidemic. We could test everyone in the population, but that's, you know, there's health, limited healthcare resources. Uh, I watched some of the videos that you um, produced where you're showing the kit, and I have to say, it couldn't be easier for somebody to do, and I think it's important that people know that, um, that it's not a complicated, it's a prick of the finger, isn't it? Yeah, so the instructions are very detailed, um, and it is really... Prick your finger, collect a few drops of blood, and then uh, put it into the test kit and get a result very shortly afterwards. Um, and we are also here to support people through that. That was one of the reasons why we created the video was to have a bit of a queer-friendly version of a HIV self-testing uh, video. And also, it was really important for us to have someone living with HIV. So we used um, Canadian model from Canada's Drag Race Victory, Travis Lenaha, to, to, to do the test. And we really wanted uh, it to be accessible to the queer community as well. Uh, what's your best hope for National HIV Testing Day on Sunday? So it was just this past Sunday. Um, and uh, I think that really the goal of this is to raise awareness of the of HIV testing and to help uh, normalize conversations that end HIV stigma. Uh, however, it doesn't have, we don't need to be just having these conversations during uh, National HIV Testing Day or Pride Month. These need to be yeah. happening every day. And uh, we need to encourage people to be able to have conversations with their healthcare providers, their friends and family, sexual partners, etc., about HIV. Where do we send people who want to find out more about the self-test kits and what you're doing? So people can go to uh, uh, our research, which is sexnowsurvey.com, uh, and they can participate in the study. Uh, and if uh, you aren't a gay, bi, queer, trans, or two-spirit person, you can go to readytoknow.ca. There's lots of information on there, and they're also running a study. Chris Drenos is uh, the guy with a really long job title at the Community-Based Research Center. Thank you so much for coming on uh, the show and sharing this important news with us. Thank you so much, Sean. Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor is on the way. You might remember her from her TED Talk, A Stroke of Insight, which had over 27 million views. Uh, she's going to talk to us about PTSD when we come back. We've got the Sean Pru Show here on SiriusXM, Canada Talks Channel 167. I can't wait. Marvelous, amorous, glorious, victorious. Welcome back to the Sean Pru Show on Canada Talks. Here's Sean Pru. Sean Pru is fanboying out on our special guest today who had perhaps the world's most famous stroke because she detailed the profound experience it was in a viral TED Talk that has had over 27 million views since it went up about 13 years ago. It's called A Stroke of Insight. If you've not seen it, run, don't walk. And her book by the same name spent over 60 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Let's play a clip from Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor's TED Talk, easily one of my favorite talks they've ever produced. When I woke later that afternoon, I was shocked to discover that I was still alive. 
when I felt my spirit surrender, I said goodbye to my life, and my mind was now suspended between two very opposite planes of reality. Stimulation coming in through my sensory systems felt like pure pain. Light burned my brain like wildfire, and sounds were so loud and chaotic that I could not pick a voice out from the background noise, and I just wanted to escape because I could not identify the position of my body in space, I felt enormous and expansive, like a genie just liberated from her bottle. And my spirit soared free like a great whale gliding through a sea of silent euphoria. Nirvana, I found nirvana. I remember thinking there's no way I would ever be able to squeeze the enormousness of myself back inside this tiny little body. But then I realized, but I'm still alive. I'm still alive, and I have found nirvana. And, and if I have found nirvana and I'm still alive, then everyone who is alive can find nirvana. And I pictured a world filled with beautiful, peaceful, compassionate, loving people who knew that they could come to this space at any time and that they could purposely choose to step to the right of their left hemispheres and find this peace. And then I realized what a tremendous gift this experience could be. What, what a stroke of insight this could be to how we live our lives. And it motivated me to recover. I have never played a clip that long in all of the eight years I've been doing this show, but it is such compelling conversation that you engage us in um, from that talk. And I, were you always a wonderful speaker? And vulnerable. Uh, you know, I I was vulnerable because I uh, before before the stroke, I was actually asking people to consider brain donation to the Harvard Brain Bank for research. And in order to, you know, at that point, people would kind of freak out my audience and think, oh, my God, she wants my brain. <laughs> and, and I would say, well, yes, yes, I do. But don't worry, I'm in no hurry. <laughs> and uh, then I, I learned that I was literally traumatizing, emotionally traumatizing my audience members. They just weren't ready for that. So I, I decided, OK, I'm going to make this fun. And uh, I, I wrote the Brain Bank jingle. And I would travel with a, a little guitar. And at some point, I would pull out my guitar and I would sing 1-800-BRAIN-BANK. Uh, and it made it fun and light and interesting. And it was like, OK, I can relax and I can actually listen to the value of brain donation. So so I've I you know, I, I came in with purpose in how in what my message was to an audience. And I wanted them to understand the beauty of what we are. Um, and that in order to know more about mental illnesses, severe mental illnesses for my interest, particularly schizophrenia, we needed the tissue to work on. And the only tissue we could work on was was family members and individuals with 
the severe mental illness. So um, I, I, I've enjoyed the process, I, but that TED Talk brought out a whole new level of my vulnerability. And mm-hmm. I was willing to g- take that journey of that clip that you took, being a great whale, gliding through a sea of silent euphoria with an audience that just held me and soared in that space with me and made it safe for me to be completely open. And they joined me in that journey. And by the end of it, it was an explosion of love. It really was magnificent. And do you think that's what has drawn 27 million people to it? I do. I think that that it is it translates through the video. Uh, the power of that message translates uh, across the boundaries of the separateness of who and what we are. And a part of us, our right brain knows we are connected and that love is uh, our number one responsibility to one another. And we yearn for that. We yearn for that belonging. Uh, and it's just right there. We just have this very you know, busy left brain that preoccupies us and feels gives us the identity of me, the individual, me, the ego, I'm separate from you. Mm -hmm. And in that separation, how do I find meaning? How do I find my purpose? How do I find my contribution to the health and well-being of the whole? So is this what a neuroautonomous does? Um, No. (laughs) Maybe tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so uh, neuroanatomy is neurobrain anatomy, the anatomy, the cellular structure. I was a cellular anatomist of the brain and of the body. I was also a gross anatomist, uh, uh, a whole body anatomist. And I'm all at the cellular level. I care about which cells are communicating with with which cells, with which chemicals, and what quantities of those chemicals. Mapping our ability, every ability we have, is because we have brain cells that are performing that function. And, you know, I have taken this this uh, unexpected, unusual journey into the depth of my own right hemisphere when I experienced that hemorrhage. And I just processed it through the eyes of a neuroanatomist. I was watching circuit by circuit go offline in my left hemisphere's ability to communicate with the external world until the point where the cells that defined the boundaries of where I began and ended disappeared. My language disappeared. My ego center with all the filter of me, the individual, disappeared. And in the absence of that, and the right, wrong, good, bad that the left hemisphere defines, I ended up being a untethered right hemisphere connected to all that is. And then I spent eight years to come back. It makes sense to me that you did observe and, and, but were you not frightened to death? I was very, I was very fortunate that that circuitry was offline. It was off. Yeah. It was off. And it was it was it was dominated and it would be in somebody who's curious about the brain. I mean, I had studied a stroke and I could tell you about it from book learning and other brain traumas from book learning. But I had never witnessed this. And I felt like, wow, this is like I'm in my own lab experimenting on myself. And I had this fantasy that I was going to be okay. And I really did once I realized my arm, right arm went paralyzed and I realized, oh my gosh, I'm having a stroke. What passed through my mind was, wow, 
how many brain scientists have the opportunity to study their own brain from the inside <laughs> out? And then it was seriously, but I'm a very busy woman. My left hemisphere's thinking, <laughs> but I'm a very busy woman. I don't have time for a stroke. Okay, I will do this for a couple of weeks. Now, right there describes the naivety. It would be eight years for me to uh, bring back all ability. Wow. I, I think one of the most um, compelling parts of the, the video is when your arm is blending into the wall. And we understand from this in the end that we're all energy. Uh, and, and I think that was part of the messaging that I, I found really powerful that you shared with us, because I think people walk around not necessarily understanding that. Right. Well, I think, uh, uh, you know, it's important that we, we reflect on ourselves and what we are mm -hmm. as a biological creature. If we're going to find value and purpose in ourselves, then we need to see ourselves in relation to those around us. And we can tune in. We have this magnificent right brain designed to read body language, read facial language, read intonation of voice, and pay attention to the energy that we're projecting into the world, as well as what we're receiving. And if we start to think about it, then we can differentiate these tools inside of our head and we can become better at it. So you observed your brain as you were experiencing the stroke that you had. Now you've done something similar in terms of understanding PTSD. I understand 70% of adults yeah. uh, experience one traumatic event in their lifetime. I would guess um, more than one for, for many, many people. 20% um, of those develop PTSD. What is PTSD by definition for anyone who doesn't know? So by definition, P, post-traumatic stress disorder. So post-traumatic, after a trauma, when we experience trauma, when we experience all information coming in front through our sensory systems, it gets processed first through our emotional system. And both, we have, a, we have an amygdala and a hippocampus in each hemisphere, and they are designed to create alarm, alarm, alert, alert, so I can protect myself. The right hemisphere is about anything happening in the, the immediate present moment. If I see a projectile flying at my head, I need to dodge that thing in order to protect myself. And that's my right brain in the right here right now. But the left hemisphere takes all information in through our sensory systems and compares it to anything we've ever experienced in the past. So let's say I was riding a bike as a little girl and I had a big dog chasing me, snapping at my feet. And I was terrified and I was traumatized by this animal. And I stopped going that route because I was just petrified. And so now, 40, 50 years later, I'm, I'm, I see a dog like that. My left hemisphere takes that information back in and it takes it right back to, is there anything about the present moment experience that I've had in the past that mm. I should view as a threat? And, and my whole system can go right back into the alarm that it had back in the back uh, many years ago. So I can rerun that high stress circuitry and I can stay and run in a state of anxiety and just wear down my adrenal glands and get hooked into that stress circuit. So much so that there are certain things that can actually trigger a total 
post-traumatic uh, remembrance of the experience. And um, this is, we have to remember the brain is made up of cells, beautiful cells that communicate in circuits. And every ability we have, we have because we have cells that are performing that function. So even our anxiety or our stress, these are cells that are being stimulated. And then what say might we have and what we can do in order to break those circuits, bring our minds back to the present moment, recognize, no, this dog is a different dog. Not all dogs that look like that are going to want to bite me. And I can actually relax into that and create a new relationship in the present moment with this new dog. We're with Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor, and she's going to help explain triggers for a PTSD attack and what you can do if you experience one on the Sean Pru Show. When we come back from break, glad you're here. The Sean Prue Show on Canada Talks, Sirius XM 167. We're talking PTSD with Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor and her new book, Whole Brain Living, The Anatomy of Choice and the Four Characters That Drive Our Life is available right now. The four characters that drive our life are what? Well, we have two emotional groups of cells, one in each hemisphere, one, as we mentioned, in the present moment, and one that's going to compare information to the past. And then from there, we have a refinement of that tissue through two modules of thinking cells. And it just makes sense that each of these specific groups of cells results in a subset of abilities. And ultimately, those abilities end up with a personality and character profile. So we have two thinking characters and we have two emotional characters. And when we get to know each of those four characters, then we have the power to choose moment by moment who and how we want to be in the world under any circumstance. Um, The morning of your very famous, world famous stroke, you had two complete PTSD flashbacks. Tell us about that. I did. I have had, um, uh, I had one happened after about two years and I was having a, uh, somebody lay carpet down in my, um, in my office, new carpet, and they were using gu- the glue gun. And I smelled that and I had an immediate flashback into the morning of the stroke. And I could tell that I wasn't having a stroke. They went in and, and they cut out the problem. It was a congenital malformation in my brain. So I knew I wasn't having the, but I was feeling the experience. And so I moved into darkness and I told my friend, just leave me alone and, and uh, bring me water and just let me sleep. Let me rest. Let me go quiet. And, um, and they did. And then after 45 minutes, it passed through me and I felt okay. So that was a complete flashback. And then it happened Again, a couple of years after that, um, I pulled out a bottle of red wine that had been in the refrigerator for over a week. And just the smell of it, again, triggered this morning of the stroke experience. And so what's happening is it's ingrained in the cells inside of my brain. And I'm triggering that circuit, allowing me to have that complete flashback. But I was aware enough to know that I'm not really having another stroke. What I'm having is a flashback experience. Why those smells? Well, the the olfactory, the sense of smell, is the only sense that goes directly into the cortex tissue as an alarm because um, 
It will save our life from eating uh, poison. It will save our life from uh, smelling a, a predator and mm. it will help us find our mate. So we are, we're programmed directly. All the other sensory systems go through the thalamus, which is like a, a relay system before it gets up into the cortex. So it happens instantaneously. When you had your PTSD attack and had to lie down, is how did it feel? And is that the same for everybody? Uh, well, you, I I felt like I was having a stroke. I I no longer had my language. My vision went uh, berserk as it had on the morning of the stroke. Um, I felt uh, I've just felt my whole world getting smaller and smaller as in the morning of the stroke. I felt weakness on the right side of my body. My face began to droop, um, and I knew, and I was rerunning the physiology. Um, if I'm a war veteran and I am highly sensitive and have flashbacks relative to loud noises like gunfire, um, you know, the statistics show that July 4th weekend is particularly hard on uh, right. emergency rooms because of flashback um, and and bringing because it's real. I mean, you're rerunning the circuitry, even though you're not in the present moment having the experience. It takes you right there and you have those thoughts and emotions. Well, and to the point where with you, your face was actually drooping. Like, how does that play? How does that even happen when it's not actually happening? Because it is happening, but it's it's not uh, it's a remembrance by those cells. It's not an actuality of that. And it also right. went very quickly. I, I can run through it in about 45 minutes. But I'll tell you, it freaks out my friends if anybody's present, because it's like, I want to take you to the emergency room. And it's like, don't, 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 don't. <laughs> wow. You've got no, um, no, no. You've got some um tri tips for people who um are feeling like a PTSD attack is coming on including a 90 second rule. Yes. From the moment we think a thought. So again, if we're paying attention to how do we feel? What are we thinking? And learning the the beauty of the beautiful uh differentiation differentiation of nuance of feeling. Uh, we can tell kind of when a, like a migraine is going to come on. We kind of get that that feeling inside of ourselves, that aura. Well, we get, for at least me, I could tell when I was beginning to trigger with the, the flashback. And if we become aware and we can tune ourselves into that and we can act on that sooner rather than later, first of all, we may be able to nip it in the bud and recognize I'm on my way into a flashback. So I'm going to move my energy into consciously choose to move my energy into one of the other characters of my brain, because it's as though all the energy in the brain goes to a certain circuit and then it's going to routinize itself and run itself. And if I can dissipate that and catch that, it's like it's like in this minute, I could get really mad at you or I could laugh. Right. right. We, we have that micro moment. And if we train ourselves to find that micro moment, we may be able to delay it. Otherwise, take responsibility for what's going on. Recognize what's happening. Know what's going on. Warn the people who you spend a lot of time with. And 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 from the moment we think a thought like 
here it comes. And then we stimulate any emotion. Let's say you say something. And every time I think of that person, I get angry. So you mention that person and I think, oh, Sean. And then I move into (laughs) stimulating that circuitry of I'm going to get angry. And then I have a physiological response where something gets dumped into my bloodstream, floods through me, flushes out of me. From the moment I get that hit that trigger to the time my blood is perfectly clear takes less than 90 seconds. So when we're in it, we feel like it's an eternity and it's going to last forever and it's never going to go away. But no, we actually have the power to, again, take the energy into other parts of our brain and observe what's going on instead of simply embodying and engaging in that circuitry so that we actually have the power to choose who and how we want to be based on we're paying attention. So this is the conversation you're having with yourself as it's unfolding, right? Yes. What what would you say to yourself? Like, what when? are the words that you would say to yourself? I I would uh, I would first of all I'd feel it, I'd recognize it, and right. I would actually now that you say it, I would say shift, shift, shift shift because in that shift to me it's like a gear it's like a shifting a gear and if i can bypass that gear then then i i I don't i don't hit it and go uh i don't hit that circuit and run it um otherwise if i'm in it i'm actually paying attention to my body if say if you say that name that person again every time it's like sean i'm gonna stop hanging out with you because you keep like triggering me so <laughs> so i hear it and it's like her and i feel that her and it's like oh yeah 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 and then i'm gonna start chewing on you and say what is wrong with you why do you do this every time we're together you try to make me mad and and i have the ability instead of acting that out to actually feel it inside of my body. What's happening to my, my, my respiration? It gets accelerated. My shoulders go up. My chest gets tighter so that I have less air. I'm clamping my jaw. I get that furrow in my brow. I want to chew on something, and it's probably you and not in a very nice way. <laughs> so, so paying attention and observing, how are we feeling? We're going to run the circuitry, but we don't have to act it out. And I think that that's really important for people to realize is I may feel something regardless of what I'm feeling. I'm feeling it because I'm a feeling creature who thinks. I'm a Mm. feeling creature who thinks. Information comes in from our sensory systems and it goes through those amygdalae and those hippocampi before it ever gets into higher cognition. So we are feeling creatures who think, but that doesn't mean I need to act out on all of my triggering. I don't have to run my automatic uh, reactivity. What are your thoughts on PTSD in a post pandemic world? What are we facing? Well, I think there's a, you know, there, we have elevated level of fear and anxiety and stress right now. Um, we're, we, we have this, we've been caged up for an for a year, right? And we feel like these restless animals and, and the fantasy of what, how perfect my life was before. And my favorite restaurant and my I want to go for walks with my friends and I want to do all these things that I did before but the pandemic has now taken out my favorite restaurant and and uh, my friend had to move away and I can't see anybody because I somebody doesn't have a vaccination and I don't feel safe in the presence of them if I am vaccinated so we're all functioning now with this elevated level of stress and anxiety the alarm alarm alert alert is going on and so I may actually behave badly Badly at you at uh, 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 when we're at the grocery store picking out our vegetables. If you sneeze on the vegetables, you know I could go irate. Where otherwise, you know, bless you. 
So what do you say to people who are listening about um, controlling that? Because we're seeing a lot of that already in viral videos, people losing their minds on others. You know, I can't do anything about you losing your mind, but I certainly have all the power in the world about how I respond to you. And if you're amped up in your emotional fear and anxiety, I don't have to mirror that, even though I have mirror neurons that make me want to go in there and tip for that with you and get in a fight about it. There's never a resolution when those two characters start fighting together. So I have the ability to to move into my mature, rational mind and, uh, you know, offer you a Kleenex or be kind to you. I have I always have the choice Mm -hmm. to be kind and I have the choice of letting my my automatic reactivity respond to your automatic reactivity or not. And so that's how we get into these fights and in these, these bad situations. If I am the one who is being hyper reactive, then, you know, I, I'm aware of this, but at the same time, I'm in my fear. I don't feel safe. Anybody who's behaving in that way, they simply are screaming, I don't feel safe. Now, they might be doing it in your face and blaming it on you, but it's not about you. It's yeah. not about the other person. It's about the person who is having the expression of, I don't feel safe, and I'm pent up, and I'm unhappy, and I'm going to spew this energy some way, and it's going to come out at you in a hostile way. So if those around us can just be calm and loving and supportive without patronizing, or getting a tip for tat, then we all stand a better chance at helping that person actually shift their energy out of that part of their brain into their other characters where they can be calm and they can go back to being kind and decent. Her new book is Whole Brain Living, The Anatomy of Choice and the Four Characters That Drive Our Life. I could listen to you all day long. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Sean. It's very kind. It's been such a pleasure. Such a pleasure. Thanks for coming on the show, Jill. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Cheers. That's it for another weekend. You can hear past episodes on demand on the SiriusXM app, and we podcast them after the broadcast on SeanPrue.com. Until next time, I wish you peace and love. Oh, my rebel.